the book of Micah, chapter number 6. And I just want to read a few verses here, uh, sort of an unusual portion of Scripture, but I believe we'll be helped by it if the Lord will, will allow us to preach it. Micah, chapter number 6. Let's begin reading in verse number 5. The Word of God says this, O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Let's read verse 8 again, and then we'll pray. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this time that you've afforded us to gather together this evening. Lord, I pray that this evening may we all come before your presence with thanksgiving. And Lord, may we all have in our hearts the determination to hear from you. Lord, we know that our spiritual man will listen, but our natural man won't receive the things that You have for us. So help us in these next few moments in particular, Lord, to not yield to the leanings and to the influences of the flesh, but I pray, Father, that You'd help us to mortify the deeds of the body and to yield our members unto righteousness. Father, that You might get glory out of this time that we have. Lord, bless Your Word. Uh, bless it to the hearts of your people. These are the sheep of your pastor, Lord. And we're asking you to feed us this evening. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Now, as we read the book of Micah, chapter number 6, we have an interesting parenthetical statement and story given to us. This is not recorded uh, in the Old Testament. Of course, we do know. Uh, who Balaam is, the prophet. Most of us know him as the one who was petitioned to curse the people of Israel. And most of us know the story about Balaam's donkey and how the Lord spoke to him through that donkey. But we have an interesting piece of narrative in front of us. God is recounting to the nation of Israel an interaction that took place between Balaam the prophet and Balak the king of Moab. And a question is set forth by Balak that I believe would help all of us to spend a little time thinking about. Now, Balak is a pagan. He is a heathen. He is an idolater. He is a worshiper of false gods. The Moabite god Chemosh would have been most likely who he would have, have worshipped, and uh, they would have made their children pass through the fire and done all sorts of hedonistic and awful and wicked things. Balak doesn't know who God is. From the outside observation, he asks this very simple question of Balaam. I want you to consider it for a few moments this evening. He asks this question, can I serve God? What does it mean to serve God? And would it be possible, Balaam, for somebody like me to serve the living God, Jehovah, the God of Israel? I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say 
I understand that we put a great emphasis on our weakness, and I think appropriately so. Let me tell you something. You and I are nothing in and of ourselves. And in our flesh dwelleth no good thing. Somebody say amen to that right there. There's not a single thing about us, not a redeeming quality within our nature. I'm aware that anything that we do that's of any eternal merit and value, we've only been able to accomplish through the Word and will and Spirit of God. I'm aware of that. But I feel as though sometimes we lay such great emphasis upon this that we lead people to believe that the average everyday person that's a child of God, that knows God, that's indwelt by the Spirit of God, that it is somehow beyond them to serve the Lord. I want to encourage you this evening as a Wednesday night crowd that has come because they do love God. You're not here because you don't love God. You're not here because you don't care. You're here because you do care. There's a lot of places that you could be this evening, but you found your way to the house of God because you're interested in serving God. And I want to tell you this evening that you can serve God. God has made a way, and God will enable you to serve Him and to serve Him successfully. You see, what Balak is really asking... There's three questions by way of introduction. It's not our message. But he asks the question in verse number 6, How can I serve enough to please God? Notice what he says at the end of the verse. Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Now what he's saying is this, Can I come before God in some way prepared to meet with Him, to serve Him? Balaam, if I was to approach to God... What could I do that would cause him to be pleased with me? Now, certainly you and I could ask the question, how can we serve God enough? You know, as a preacher of the Word of God, we are consistently exhorting people to more service. And I think appropriately so. I think whatever you're doing for God, you ought to be doing more of it. Amen? I think we all could be doing more to serve God. But don't think that just because we can all be doing more, that God isn't pleased to some level with what we are doing for Him. He says, how can I serve God enough? How can I serve enough? Verse number 7, he says this, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? He asks this question, Balaam, how can I serve enough? But he asks this question too, how can I give enough to please God? What could I give to a king that would please him? Balaam, would it take thousands of rams? Would it take ten thousands of rivers of oil to in some way please God? What is it that God requires of those that serve Him? Let me say again to you this evening, as I've said many times, that there's no way to outgive God. God won't be a debtor to any man. I promise you, and I'm not, I'm not begging you, I'm not even encouraging you to do this, but I am making you this promise that if you were to empty your wallet and empty every single number and digit out of your bank account for the cause of Christ, and if you were to do it sincerely because you felt that's what the Lord had of you, I promise you God would reward you a hundredfold for it. God's not going to be a debtor to any man. God always makes good on His promises. And it doesn't matter what you give Him, He'll give it back, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. But he asks this third question. He says, can I serve God enough, Balaam? What could I give that would be enough 
to the Lord. But he says in the end of verse number 7, he says, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I think that there is sort of a hint in that question as to this. How can I love God enough? With what could I measure my affection for an almighty God? Surely most of us would admit that there's nothing in the world that we love more than our families. And once you have a child, there's nothing you love more just about than that child. They mean everything to you. You care for them and you watch over them and you see to their needs and you never stop loving them. They're always yours. doesn't matter what they do. doesn't matter where they go. They're always your child. You always love them. Your heart always goes out for them. And Balak says, Balaam, what if I was to take that which I love the very most? Not just a child, but he says, my firstborn. Now, I understand that most of us would say that we love all of our children equally and you know, we know that ain't true, but we say it anyway, amen? And, uh, but understand that to, to this man, to this pagan king, the firstborn represented all of his hopes, all of his aspirations. That was the heir. That was the one in whom all of his dreams was vested. And he's saying, what if I was to give that? Would that be loving God enough? You may have asked these same questions. I think there's been times that I've wondered the same thing. How much does God want me to give? How much does God want me to serve? How can I show Him that I do love Him? When would God say you've done sufficiently? Is there a way to know, can we do the will of God? Well, there's a verse that came to my mind as I pondered this. And we'll get into the preaching in just a moment. But I want you to stop and ponder this with me. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, listen to what the Word of God says. It's speaking about the history of Israel And speaking about the time when God removed Saul from the the kingdom, and it says this, And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Now, you know why that's interesting to me? And I know there's some that would say, well, that's prophetically speaking about Jesus Christ. And I would contend that if you look at Acts chapter 13, the very next verse talks about how that Jesus Christ is of the seed of this man. So evidently, when God said that David was going to fulfill all of his will, he wasn't just talking about Jesus Christ, but he was also talking about David. Now, we look at the life of David, we see a life that's checkered with mistakes. We see a life that is far from perfect. We see a life where a man uh, was given over to lust and out of fear and out of pride. He took the life of an innocent man. We see a man whose family is falling apart from which the sword would never depart. We see a man that made a lot of mistakes. But God says of that man, He fulfilled all my will. Now, how can God say that about him? Except there be a few basic truths to which God sums up what His will is. Now, I don't say this this evening to try to get you to sit back and rest and do less for God. I say this this evening to encourage you to move on and go forward in serving God and know this, that you can serve God in your life. You can fulfill the will of God for your life. You don't have to be perfect to fulfill the will of God. You don't have to have a spotless record to fulfill the will of God. You don't have to pledge to never make a mistake again to fulfill the will of God. Balaam turns to Balak and he says this, there's three things that the Lord requires. 
Now, I understand that in a sense all of the law could be summed up in these three things. In fact, all of the law could be summed up in two things. The Christ teaches us in the Gospel to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. But whenever Balak asks what serving God looks like of Balaam the prophet, Balaam says there's three things that serving God looks like. Three things that God requires. And I want you to ask yourself if these things are present in your life, and I want you to ask yourself if they could be more present. I want you to notice them with me. Look at the three things he says in verse 8. It says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Notice the first thing is to have the required actions or activity in your life. The very first thing that Balaam points to is he says, God wants you and me to do justly in the way that we live. Let me say that I understand that God looks on the heart, but I understand that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I'm aware that God has the ability to look past my faults and to see my intentions, but I'm also aware that if I yield my intentions to the work of the Holy Ghost, that they're going to bear fruit in my life. I understand, in other words, if I've got things right on the inside, they're eventually going to come out right on the outside. And I understand that a right heart will result in a right walk with God. Let me say that the first step that God requires the first thing he asks is he says this, and I know this sounds cute, but he says, hey, do the right thing. Behave in the way that you live and your actions. Now, this may seem like a simple command, but most of us find it's not as simple as it seems. It may be simple in principle. It may be simple in the application of it, but it seems to be very difficult to practice this in our daily walk. I want you to notice first off the service that is spoken of. He begins by saying that you got to do justly. Now, we know what that word do is. It's an active word. It it, it reveals to us the notion and idea of serving and obeying God, not just merely with our thoughts or our words, but with our very actions. And let me say that as believers, if we really want to please God, if we really want to fulfill the will of God, then we'll dismiss and ignore all of the excuses, all of the reasons we shouldn't, or all of the reasons we think we can't, and we'll get down to brass tacks and simply serve God with the time that we have. There's no substitution for service. It doesn't matter what we have. There's no substitution for service. Let me tell you something. It's amazing. I've I've worked on a public job and, and probably just about everybody in this room has worked on public jobs and knows what it's like. And the truth is, most of us, if we approached God with the same, uh, or if we approached our, work, our co-workers and our bosses with the same measure of devotion, dedication, and service to which we approach God, we wouldn't have lasted inside of a week. You see, it's just very simple. We've got to do the right thing. God didn't call any of us to be idle. Now, I'm glad God uses all of us in different capacities. Hey, listen, there's some stuff, I promise you, that if it was left up to me to do, I'd make a real mess out of it. But God has called some of you to do some things, and He's given you talents, and He's given you abilities, and sometimes He's given you spiritual gifts that you exercise to that end. And God has enabled you to do some things that I'd sure make a mess of. There may be some things that God has enabled me to do and empowered me to do and God expects out of my life and no one else 
else could do it but me. It's my job to do. And no one could do the things that God expects out of you but you. You see, we all have a job. We all have a work. I can't do your work and you can't do my work, but we can all do some work. Amen? Every one of us can. There's a service that's spoken of, but there's a standard that's spoken of. He says to do, but to do in what way? He says to do justly. Now, what does justly mean? It means in a just manner. You'll find it all through the Bible with the idea of judgment. Judgment, judgment. Well, what's the ultimate judgment? What's the standard by which we're to measure our lives? What is the means through which we look at our lives and align it so that we know it's according to the will of God? The standard for our actions ought to be the Word of God. That ought to be the thing that we measure our life against. You see, it's very, very simple. God wants you to serve Him and to serve Him scripturally. You're not serving God if you're not serving Him scripturally. But if you're serving Him scripturally, you're going to serve Him. Let me tell you something. I, I, I understand. We, we need to study and learn and love the Word of God. Uh, but we have far too many uh, theoretic theologians. Amen? And far too many people that just get down to the nitty-gritty of it and serve God. I'm all for it. I'm all for getting your doctrine organized. I can talk it all that you want. And we can talk about it. And we ought to be doctrinally correct. But let me say that our doctrinal correctness will drive us to a disciplined devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the same token, let's flip it around. Let's, let's instead of looking through the telescope, let's look at the microscope and let's say this, uh, that if we're really going to serve God, we ought to do it in a way that is scriptural and in accordance and in line with His Word. We can waste a lot of energy doing things our way, but if we want to please God, then we ought to heed to His Word. We can say that we love Him. Well, you know what He said? If you love me, keep my commandments. It's that simple. That is the acid test for how much we love God. Listen, we can love God with tears. We can love God with shouts. We can love Him and get beside ourselves. And we can love Him in the stillness and quiet of the evening. But if we don't love Him with our life as well as our lips, we don't really love Him. There's a standard by which we measure things. You say, what does God want of me, preacher? Well, number one, He wants you to serve Him and serve Him according to His Word. It ought to be that your beliefs are rooted and founded in the Word of God. It's amazing how many people that are confessed Christian or professed Christians, the things that they believe and the way that they behave is not in line with the Word of God. Can I give you an example? I hope it's okay if I do. Uh... There's a lot of folks that claim that they're Christians that see no issue with going out and drinking. Now, what does the Bible say about that? The Bible says to not even look on the wine. It doesn't say, oh, I know, oh, the Bible says take a little wine for your stomach. Hey, and you and I both do that. When we get sick, we might take a little NyQuil or a little medicine or something to soothe uh, that which is uh, ailing us in our head or in our sinuses or something to that effect. Uh, in a day when there was no medicine to speak of, they might have done something like that. Uh, but I tend to believe that the wine that uh, Paul is speaking of is not even fermented wine. I tend to believe that when Paul tells Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake, he's not even talking about fermented wine. I believe he's talking about grape juice, the fruit of the vine, and what he's saying, because it's always had a medicinal quality, pure, fresh grape juice does, he's saying, hey, don't worry. He had already told him not to be gluttonous. They had already accused the Lord of being a wine-bibber. And what he's saying is, Timothy, uh, though you ought to be austere, though you ought to watch yourself, though you ought not to be gluttonous, don't fear to enjoy the pure or fresh, unfermented fruit of the vine in times when it might require it for your stomach's sake. 
And you say, Preacher, what do you say all that for? I'm not up here to fuss at you, getting an argument with you, because there ain't nothing to argue. The Bible's already settled it. What I'm merely saying is that a lot of people, culture dictates the way they behave instead of the Word of God. Now, that's fine if you want to do that. You're going to answer to God for it. But don't call yourself a Bible-believing Christian if you're not a Bible-living Christian. Because if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you'll be a Bible-living Christian. So, there's the required actions for our life. But then I want you to notice a second thing. He says, we are to do justly. And number two, he says, we are to love mercy. There is a required action in our life or activity, but I'd say there's a required affection in our life. Now, I understand that the first thing we're to love above all other things is the Lord Jesus Christ. But understand, too, that these are very practical, pragmatic, outward-appearing evidences of an inward life that Balaam is speaking about to Balak. And he says, number one, you ought to serve God and serve Him according to the Word of God. But number two, there's some things you ought to care about and there's some affections you ought to have to those that are around you. In other words, he's talking about the compassion that we have to those that are around us. We could spend a lot of time talking about that phrase, uh, to love mercy. But let me tell you what the Bible says about love and about mercy. I want to say a word about the recipient of mercy. Now, how many of you know that as you study your Bible, there's what we call the law of first mention? In other words, first time something's mentioned in the Bible, it's important. And it sets some standards and some ideals and some qualities about that truth that carry all the way through the Word of God unless there is first a dispensational and doctrinal shift. And as such, we ought to go back to the very first place we can find something in the Word of God to get an idea about it. Well, I want you to notice this. The very first time the word mercy is used in your Bible is in Genesis 19. Listen to what it says, and you'll know where we're at as we begin to read it. In verse 17, it says this, And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain, escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. Now, do you know where we're reading? We're reading the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot had been dragged unwillingly out of that city. And they are escaping out of the city. And the angel of the Lord turns and looks at Lot and says, Run for it. Run for your life. Don't look back. Get away from this place. Get high into the mountains and escape the judgment of God. It says this in verse 18. And Lot said unto them, O not so, my Lord. Behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. I want you to stop and think about who the first person in the Bible that we have clearly dictated that they received mercy is. The very first person is not somebody that's in good shape. (laughs) In fact, the Bible describes Lot in the book of Jude when it talks about him vexing his righteous soul day in and day out with their evil doings in Sodom and Gomorrah. Most of us, if you were to ask us, what's your opinion about Lot? We'd say it's not very much. The only real story of any substance we have concerning Lot is that he led his family out of the well water, out of uh, the place of God's blessing and out of Canaan and down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, that he compromised his children for his cattle, uh, that he uh, chased after temporal things and held hands with the world, that he got so depraved and degraded in sin that he got to the place that he was willing to sacrifice his own daughters to a murderous and uh, vulgar crowd to try to save the angel of the Lord that was there with him. I mean, when we look at Lot, we look at a man whose life is a wreck. 
And that's the very first person in the whole Bible that God says, I showed mercy on him. Can I say this? You say, preacher, what does God require out of me? What God requires us to have mercy. But God requires us to have mercy on those that probably don't deserve our mercy. In fact, look what it says. Let me go a little further with this story of Lot. He says, You've magnified thy mercy which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. He says, And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Behold now, this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not but a little one, and my soul shall live? Now paint the picture with me. I mean, Lot is a man. He's not just a man that's willing to help himself. He's a man that obstinately is doing everything he can to try to keep God from helping him. He is a man that has made bad choices and is still making bad choices. He is a man that has run from the commandments and mandates and will of God. And he's a man that even when the city is on fire, God's having to drag him out of that place. And once God spares him, you'd think that the blindness and bondage of Sodom and Gomorrah would have dropped like scales from his eyes when he got away from that hedonistic city. But now, even in moments of escaping, he's begging them to somehow let him stay in some kind of proximity Don't make me go to higher ground. Let me stay in the plain. Let me go to Zoar. It's just a little city. Let me stay just a little longer. And yet the Lord had mercy on him. Could I suggest to you that one of the things God requires of me and you is that we don't just love people that are lovable. And we don't just have mercy on people that we think deserve that we have mercy on them. But that we seek out those sometimes that are making bad decisions and then even worse decisions. Those that sometimes you try to help and don't want to be helped and do everything that they can to keep from being helped. Those that when you try to take them by hand and lead them out of the poor mistakes that they've made, do everything they can to beg you and you have to drag them kicking and screaming out of their poor decisions. God says, those are the people that I have mercy on. Those are the people that you need to have mercy on. You said, preacher, how could we do such a thing as that? Well, I think it's, I think it's revealed to us in that word love. Let's try it again. Let's see how the Bible works. Amen. You know that the first time that the word love is found in the Bible is also in the book of Genesis. It's found in Genesis chapter 22. And listen to what it says in the first two verses. You'll know them as soon as we start to read them. The Bible says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac. And here it is. Whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. The very first time that love is spoken of in the Bible, it is not only parental love, but it is a love of relinquishing to the Lord. Could I suggest this to you, that God reminds Abraham of his love for Isaac, not to hinder Abraham's actions, but to help his actions? Could it be that when God tells Abraham, you need to give Isaac to me, he reminds him that he loves Isaac, not because he's expecting to lose Isaac, but rather because that sacrifice would be, in fact, the greatest expression of love that Abraham could ever show? 
I know that sometimes we like to imagine that Abraham just loved God so much he was willing to give up Isaac even though he loved him. But do you know that the New Testament gives us a little better insight than that? The New Testament tells us this, that when Abraham gave Isaac to the Lord, when Abraham laid Isaac upon that altar, it wasn't because he was willing to say goodbye and never see him again. It was because he had faith that if he killed Isaac, that God would raise him from the dead because God had already made promise that it was in Isaac that his seed would be called. You see, the thing that Abraham had to do is he had to trust God with Isaac. You say, preacher, how do we love folks like that? How do we show mercy on folks like that? Well, you recognize who it is that you're showing that mercy towards. You see, if Abraham had thought he was giving Isaac to anybody but the Lord, he couldn't have done it because he loved him. But you and I, in as much as we show mercy to those that don't deserve mercy, you know why we do it? We do it because we're doing it as unto the Lord. The Bible tells us this that we forgive one another for Christ's sake, even as or for God's for God's sake, even as God also for Christ's sake hath forgiven you and me. We don't show mercy because they deserve it, because the truth is this nobody that gets mercy deserves mercy. Nobody that gets mercy deserves mercy. The people that deserve mercy don't need mercy. Only those that don't deserve it are the ones that get it because they're in the greatest need of it. The way that we do it is we do it as unto the Lord. We see the recipient of our mercy, but we see the relinquishing of our mercy. We recognize that we're not uh, giving our mercy over to someone that's going to abuse it. Hey, they may trample on our well wishes. They may do poorly uh, with our uh, goodwill. Uh, They may treat our compassion as pearls before swine, but it's not them that we're having mercy for. It's the Lord that we're having mercy for and for His sake. I want you to notice not only are there required actions and a required affection, but in closing, I want you to notice that there is a required attitude that the Lord speaks of. He says this, What's required of you is but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. If we were to sum up the Christian life in three words, We might say that there is a required action and a required affection, but we might say that the required attitude is that of humility. I thought it was interesting as I began to study this. You know, sometimes I like to find out. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I believe that the King James translators were a lot smarter than any of these fellows we have out here today. Somebody say amen to that. Fifty-four of the most brilliant men that ever walked the face of the earth. And... As such, you can get your definitions from a Strong's Concordance if you want, but you're really allowing Strong's to determine what you believe and how you define the Word of God. i tell you what I like to do. I like to find that Word, and I like to see how the translators translated it in other places in the King James Bible. You know why? Because that tells me what they thought about the Word that I'm learning about. And as I began to do that, you know that this same Word is found only one other time in the Word of God. Now you say, but I thought the word humble is found a lot. And it is. The word uh, humble is found over 25 times in the Word of God. But usually it's a little different word for humble. Usually when it's used, it has the idea of an outward depression. In other words, if I wanted to humble myself before you, I might lay down on the ground and show my humility in front of you. But the humility 
that Balaam was talking about to Balak was not an outward humility. It was an inward humility. It's found only one other time. In Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 2, it says this, When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. So what Balaam is talking about here is not just a, an outward worship or an outward show, but rather he's talking about a lowliness of heart and mind that we are to have before God. And there was a passage that came to my mind when I thought about that. I thought about Philippians chapter 2. I, I'm going to tell you something. I've tried to preach on Philippians chapter 2 a lot, and I usually fall pretty short. I mean, I fall short on everything I preach, but I fall way short on that. And uh, it's a mysterious passage. But the Bible exhorts us this way in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5 says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, this isn't an outward humility. There is an outward humility we ought to show. But this is about an inward humility. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation. Isn't it funny that Christians work so hard on the reputations, being that our Lord made himself of no reputation? <laughs> we worry so much about what folks are going to think about us, and the Lord made himself of no reputation. It says, And he took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Now, you know what the truth is to the lowliness of Jesus Christ? The lowliness of Jesus Christ was not self-deprecating, but rather it was spiritually submissive. He did not humble Himself because He did not deserve to be exalted. If ever there was anyone that deserved to be exalted, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But rather He humbled Himself because it was the will of of the Father. You say, Preacher, sum up Christianity for me. Well, I think you need to have the right actions. You need to live like a Christian. I think you need to have the right affection. You need to have compassion on people. But I think this, we need to have the right attitude, which is this, that I'm willing to do and be anything for the glory of God the Father. I'm willing to put my everything and label it as nothing if it means lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ. I may think I'm something, other people may think I'm something, but I'm going to consciously make myself of no reputation, consisting and determining that I'm going to lift up Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm going to glory in nothing save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something, it'll serve you a lot, or it'll save you a lot of sleepless nights if you'll just go ahead and make your mind up that anything anybody does to you, you deserved a lot worse than that. Oh, man, I didn't get no help there, did I? Anything that anybody... You say, preacher, somebody lied about me. Well, if you got what you deserved, you'd be in hell. <laughs> preacher, somebody talked bad about me. Well, if, uh, if you got what you deserved, you'd be in hell tonight. So you're still ahead of things, aren't you? Hey, I know that's not easy, but... God gives us not only the condescension of this attitude, but He gives us a companion with this attitude. I like what it says here. I like all the Bible, but I really like this. It says, not to walk humbly before thy God, or not to walk humbly in front of thy God, 
But it says to walk humbly with thy God. Here, let's do it one more time before we close. Even a little word like with. Now, I don't know how often we use the term with in a day. Probably hundreds. There's no telling how long it took you. Probably just a matter of moments this morning when you crawled out of bed before you used the term with. But did you know that in the Word of God, God gets three chapters before He ever uses that little word with? In fact, it's found in Genesis chapter 3. And I think this is significant. You know, when we think of the word with, we think of togetherness, don't we? Withness. I mean, you always want somebody with you when you're in a bad spot. You always want somebody with you when you're having a good time. And listen to the first time that that common word with is used in the Bible. In Genesis 3, 6, it says, in the one, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat. You say, preacher, that don't mean much to me. Well, it means a lot to me. Do you know why? Because in Genesis chapter 3, we have one of the first most beautiful types of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible talks about the woman being deceived in the transgression. But the Bible says that the man, he wasn't deceived. He willfully and knowingly did what he did. You say, what's the picture here, preacher? Well, Adam was the husband of Eve, and he loved Eve. And ladies, I'm not trying to put you in a bad light, and I sure ain't trying to put us in a good light. But this is the truth of the Word of God. Eve was deceived, and she ate of the fruit, but Adam knew exactly what he was doing. You say, why did he do that, preacher? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, but I think the main reason is because he loved her, and he didn't want to be without her. You see, he partook of the iniquity so that they could be together. There's another beautiful picture here. God was going to promise them a seed that would come and redeem all of mankind. And if Adam hadn't partaken in the fruit, he would have never been able to have had fellowship with Eve. There would have never been a genealogy and a lineage issue forth from Adam and Eve, and the seed never could have been born. You see, that's a beautiful picture of what the Lord Jesus did for us. You and I were His church, and we messed up. Humanity sinned and ate of the fruit and was spiraled into depravity, but bless the Lord that our bridegroom was willing to be made sin for you and I that He could redeem us unto Himself. Why did He do that? Because He loves us. He loves us. You know, the first thing that we see when we find the word with in the Bible, we have a picture of the Lord being with His church even through the tough times. Isn't it good to know Listen to what it says in James chapter 4, verse 6. The Bible says, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Down in verse number 10 it says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. He couldn't lift you up except he was already with you. Am I right? Somebody say amen to that. Help me with that. He couldn't lift you up unless he was already with you there. In other words, here's the truth that we find. When we walk in humility, God walks with us. When we walk in humility, God will lift us up. You know why a lot of us don't want to be humble? We're afraid we'll get took advantage of. Listen to me. When we humble ourselves, we have one that's walking with us that He don't allow Himself to be took advantage of. We have one that's walking with us that's won every battle that He's ever fought. We have one walking with us uh, at whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And He casts a long shadow.
You say, preacher, what is it that the Lord wants out of my life? Well, I believe the Lord wants us to live like a Christian. And there's no substitute for living like a Christian. It don't, I, talking like a Christian is not the same as living like a Christian. I think if you're a Christian, you ought to both live and talk like one. But just talking like a Christian ain't the same thing as living like a Christian. I believe we ought to love those that are around us, have compassion on those that it's not even easy to have compassion on. But I believe we ought to learn to count ourselves but dung, count ourselves nothing before this lost and dying world, and walk humbly with our God. And if we will, the Bible says He'll walk with us. Now, don't you like how simple God makes it? Isn't it good to know that God puts things right down where we need it? I don't know about you, but I, there ain't a lot of that deep stuff I can get into. God puts it right down where we need it in the book of Micah.